turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we're continuing our way through this chapter. We'll be, Lord willing, finishing up chapter 11 this morning. Just encourage you to also, you may stand with me if you'd like. Some of you are very eager. I appreciate that. That's good. That's good. Uh, encourage, as you get there, you can turn there, and if you're not able to stand, that's, that's fine as well. We stand in honor of, of God and, and His Word. Uh, Luke chapter 11, we'll just echo the encouragement uh, for those of you who are, have not already done so to get your, director, your pictures taken for the directory. Uh, it's a great way for us as we grow as a church to continue feeling that, that sense of closeness and fellowship, and so encourage you to do that. Uh, Luke chapter 11, we'll begin in verse 45. Jesus has just been speaking to the Pharisees in verse 45. We read, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning and the spirit work upon our hearts. Let's pray. And Father, that is our request, that you would work in our hearts as we hear these words, that our hearts would not be hard, that they'd be hearts of flesh and not hearts of stone, that you'd renew us through the reading of your word and enable us to apply it in your strength. And we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name, amen. This past week, I saw the title of a book that really captured my attention. It's coming out later this month. It's entitled, you are not so smart. And then it's subtitled, uh, Why You Have Too Many Friends on Facebook, Why Most of Your Memories Are Fiction, and 46 Other Ways You Delude Yourself. Very humbling title for a book. Uh, I was reading an article about this book, and the art- actually the article I was reading mentioned the book. The article was about something called the Dunning Kruger effect, the Dunning Kruger effect. And Dunning and Kruger were two social scientists that did this experiment that demonstrated that sometimes people who have a uh, very uh, who have very high skills in an area tend to underestimate their ability, whereas people who are not that gifted in an area tend to overestimate their ability. One of the examples that I, I read about was about two factory workers named Sally and Kelly. And Sally was a factory worker, and they they both made these teddy bears. And and Sally had an effective rate of 
making these teddy bears at about 95%. And she would very rarely make a mistake. Whenever she did make a mistake, she would catch the mistakes that she made almost all the time. But she saw the 5% of the mistakes that she was making and assumed that she was making more and missing them. And so she thought she was about 90% effective. That was Sally. Then there was another factory worker working near Sally named Kelly, and this factory worker made mistakes all the time. She had an effective rate of about three out of four. One out of four would be some sort of error in this bear that she'd be making. But she thought that she was doing a lot better because she didn't catch her mistakes. She thought she was about 99% effective. And so you have these two factory workers, one good at her job, thinking that she wasn't good, one not very good at her job, thinking that she's amazingly effective. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect, and you see it throughout your life, don't you? People who aren't that gifted thinking that they're much better at something than they really are, self-deluded. It explains why that person that's kind of a good singer in their family thinks that they should go on a national talent show and, and display their skills for all to see. It probably explains some of your coworkers and their beliefs about their abilities. It explains why celebrities who read a couple articles about an issue feel like they really understand it enough to lecture the rest of us about it on national TV. It's an effect that's common throughout life. And as we look at the text this morning, beginning in verse 45, I think we see kind of a a funny yet also tragic example of this self-delusion. You see, in the spiritual world as well, people sometimes think they are more right with God than they really are. Remember where we are as we come to verse 45. Last week, we saw that Jesus has entered the home of a Pharisee, and he's reclined at table. And as he came in, the in this setting, the, the door would have been open, other people would have filed into the room, and they'd be, they'd be kind of standing along the sides of the room, watching Jesus and these Pharisees and scribes eat, and Jesus comes, and he sits down in this room, other people would have entered the room as well, and Jesus sits down, he reclines at the table, and he does something that shocks his host, this Pharisee that's invited him into his home, Jesus doesn't engage in the ritualistic washing of his hands. He reclines at table. The Pharisee that's invited him is shocked at his behavior, his rudeness, and Jesus, understanding what's going on, begins to attack the Pharisee and the other Pharisees at the table. He says, look, you guys are concerned with external purity, but you're completely unconcerned with internal righteousness. Inside of you is full of greed and wickedness, and it begins woe after woe after woe, three woes upon these Pharisees. And last week we asked the question, am I a Pharisee? Do I demonstrate the characteristics of a Pharisee based upon these things that Jesus said to these guys who are also around the table? Now I imagine as Jesus said these things to the Pharisees, there were people standing along listening to what Jesus was saying to these guys at the table that kind of had a uh, emperor's new clothes moment. You know that story, The Emperor's New Clothes by Hans Christian Andersen, where uh, the little boy sees the emperor and he says to his mom, Mom, the emperor isn't even wearing any clothes. And everyone else goes, yeah, he's right. I imagine the Pharisees, some of them, as they sat at the table, are having very hard hearts, but some of the people that are listening to what Jesus says to the Pharisees are having that kind of aha moment. They had kind of assumed that the Pharisees were righteous people, but as they hear Jesus talking to them, they realize that what Jesus is saying is absolutely right. 
So Jesus reclines at the table. He gives these woes to the Pharisees. And also at the table, maybe a couple people down from Jesus, also reclined at the table, is a lawyer. Last week we talked about the four kind of main religious groups that existed in first century Judaism. A lawyer wasn't necessarily uh, a, a fifth religious group. A lawyer was one who kind of identified himself with one of the other religious groups. Most often in Scripture, we see these lawyers, they're also called scribes or experts in the law, we see them identified a lot with the Pharisees, but sometimes with the chief priests, but, but often with the Pharisees. What the scribes did is they were kind of like the theologians for the Pharisees. They were literate, they were able to read God's law, and then they kind of interpreted God's law and helped apply it, and then the Pharisees were in charge of enforcing it. So the lawyers, the scribes, the experts in the law were kind of the uh, theologians that the Pharisees relied upon for their system. In order to be a lawyer, you would have begun by uh, sitting under another lawyer, and you would at first just kind of mimic his gestures. You'd, you'd do everything that he did and try to articulate the truth the exact same way that your mentor did. The second phase of being a lawyer would be that you had the opportunity to, to teach, and then the third phase of being a lawyer would, that pe- would be that people could come to you, ask your opinion, and based upon the traditions that had been established by your mentor and all the years of, of history of interpreting the law, the Torah, then you could kind of give your opinion on how to apply the law based upon the traditions. That's what a lawyer is. Now, Jesus does all these woes to the Pharisees, also at the table as lawyer and, and some other lawyers, and this lawyer, as he listens to Jesus blast these Pharisees, he's very uncomfortable. And in his mind, he's thinking, this guy doesn't know what he's saying. This poor, ignorant teacher, as he's blasting the Pharisees, in reality, in reality, he's criticizing those of us who are lawyers. Because we're the ones who set up the system that the Pharisees are following. I probably, I probably should say something. And, uh, kind of paraphrase one comedian, what he should have said was nothing. But in a moment of of delicious self-delusion, Jesus' words of condemnation to the Pharisees have just ceased. They're still kind of lingering in the air. And the lawyer says, "Uh, Jesus, when you insult them, just so you know, you're insulting us also. And Jesus turns to the lawyer and says, in effect, thank you for bringing that up. And then unloads on him. You see, the lawyer had violated one of life's fundamental rules. When someone who deserves it is getting a verbal beatdown, back away. Our kids and I were talking about this last night. You know, whenever uh, one of our children is in trouble, Let's say both our, our kids, two of our kids have been running around the table and they've knocked something and broken it and they kind of go away and one kid happens to wander back into the room and there's mom and she begins to correct that kid. The second kid doesn't walk in the room and say, hey, mom, just so you know, when you're correcting him, you're kind of hurting my feelings too. When that happens, when you see that situation, what do you do? Good job. You back away. You leave the room. You don't say anything. The lawyer violates one of life's fundamental rules and opens his mouth 
And Jesus begins to deal with this lawyer's self-delusion. This lawyer had a belief that he and the other lawyers were, were close to God and understood the, good, the, the things of God. And in reality, he is way overestimating his understanding of God and his character and his application of it. So this morning, what I want us to do, again, is ask this question, a similar question to what we asked last week, and it's, it's am I a lawyer? Last week we asked, am I a Pharisee? This week we're asking, am I a lawyer? And just kind of uh, two points of clarification. Uh, point of clarification number one, someone came up to me, my good friend Neil came up to me last week and said, hey Daniel, I, I saw your question, am I a Pharisee? And I want to tell you the answer, no, you are not a Pharisee. So point of clarification, this is a question that we're all asking ourselves, right? And uh, the, 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 the four questions, here's the other clarification, as we go through these four questions that are based on this main question, am I a lawyer, they're hard questions. And if you're able to, each of these four questions, look at them and go, nope, not me, nope, not me, nope, not me, nope, not me, I will be sure to pass this sermon on to someone else, Daniel, there's a problem, Right? If you're so confident of your own standing before God and the, the, the purity of your own heart, there should be a concern. By the same token, if you're just able to answer all these questions, yep, 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 that's me, you're a lawyer. What should be the reaction of our hearts, I believe, as we think about these four questions, should be something like this. You know, this, I can see myself in this. And God Please give me your grace to flee from this hard attitude. Or, God, I don't think this is true of me, but by your grace, it's not true of me, and please help it to continue to not be true of me. And, Lord, I know that I, it could be true of me, and so help me. That should be our response to each of these questions this morning. Let's begin looking at the first question. We see it in verses 45 and 46. The first question is, are my expectations for others harsh and burdensome? Are my expectations for others harsh and burdensome? We've looked at verse 45 already. He says, uh, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, and saying these things, you insult us also. Jesus goes to the lawyer and says, oh, thank you for mentioning that, and woe to you, lawyers, also. And why, what's the first woe? For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The word for burden here refers, is also a word that's used to refer to like the, the, the cargo in a ship. It's this, this weighty thing. And what the lawyers have done is they've taken God's word, and for the sake of their traditions, they've added all sorts of regulations on it. Remember last week we talked about tithing and some of the regulations they had for tithing. The lawyers had devised this system that, based upon how one gathered food depended upon whether or not one needed to tithe one-tenth of it. They had these regulations about washing the hands that we mentioned last week. They also had regulations for how you observe the Sabbath. They said you couldn't do work on Sabbath, and then they had something called the, the 40 minus 1. The 40 minus 1 were 39 different categories of work that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And then they took each of those categories and they, they further explained what they meant by it. For example, you couldn't 
carry things on the Sabbath. And then they said, this is what we mean by carry. You can't carry something in your right hand. You can't carry something on your left, in your left hand. However, you can carry it on the back of your hand. You could carry it with your foot. You could carry it with your teeth. And you could tie it to your hair. That's an oppressive system, right? That rules about what type of help you could give a person on the Sabbath. The lawyers had devised all these regulations for how one was to live their life in obedience to the law, and it was an oppressive, burdensome system. In fact, the common person who, was, who needed to, to make a living and was engaging with other people, the common person had no ability, no ability, zero ability to follow the law the way the lawyers said a person needed to follow the law. And you know what the lawyer's response to that was? Eh, who cares? They were so concerned about their own self-righteousness, they had no sense of unease that other people weren't able to follow the laws that they had devised around God's Word. It would have been one thing if the lawyers felt bad for people, like, man, how can we help people? How can we engage people and help them love God? And they devised these rules because they had a real heart for people and wanted to help them obey God's law. They had no concern for other people. Jesus says, you create these burdens, you place them on people, and you don't even lift a finger to kind of help them as they try to be obedient to these laws you've enacted. And what's more... Not only do they avoid helping other people, they had devised a system that allowed them to have exemptions. They knew the laws well enough to where they could obey the the law, but totally ignore the spirit of the law. They could have other people burdened by these regulations they devised, and at the same time could avoid doing anything in line with the spirit of what God wanted. Let me give you a couple of examples. Matthew 23 It's another passage we come to and find Jesus attacking the scribes and and Pharisees, a parallel passage. And he says in verse 16 of Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. In other words, they had set up this law saying, Look, if you swear by the temple, eh, it's okay, you can violate that oath. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, whoa, you better keep that. They've done all these things. Another example is in Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, the Pharisees are all bent out of shape, and the scribes are bent out of shape because Jesus' disciples haven't washed their hands the way that they're supposed to. In verse 3, Jesus says, and this is Matthew 15, verse 3, he answered, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So they had set up this tradition. God's law said, God's word said, honor your father and mother. The Pharisees said, uh, if your father and mother comes to you and says, I I need help from you, you can say, "Ah, I'd love to, but I've already given that money to God. I'm spending it, but it's God's money. Ugh, Sorry. By their laws, they devised a system that burdened other people and exempted themselves from obeying the most important parts of God's rules, God's commandments, His Word. Totally contrary to the gospel. Remember what Jesus is going to say? Matthew 11, Jesus is going to say, 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my yoke, my burden, my discipleship on you. Learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does the lawyer do? The lawyer's expectations for others are harsh and burdensome. You may have remember that old question. Why are Christians so concerned about keeping their children from immorality? Answer, it leads to dancing. Is this thing on, guys? I don't. God bless those sound guys. They have a hard job. I need a, I need a laugh applause line here. <laughs> or just laugh line. We're concerned about our traditions often more times than God's word. And so we get concerned about immorality because it could lead to things like dancing. We, we get concerned with our traditions instead of the great things of God. Give you a couple, a couple of examples of this, ways that we burden other people. I think we burden other people have expectations that are harsh and burdensome oftentimes uh, through our traditions, through our traditions. What would happen in our church if we suddenly had an influx of people who were from a different culture than the, the primary culture here, either economically or, or just, just background ethnically? What would happen if, if at Bethany Community Church there was just an, an, uh, an explosion of, of, of growth that, uh, of people that were different than you and me? Would we be so locked into our traditions, the way that we do a worship service, the songs we sing, our kind of our, our service style, would we be so locked into that that we would tell other people, look, if you want to participate in worship here, if you want to be right with God here, you need to follow our traditions. Another way, that, so that's one way we place harsh burdens on other people. Another way is, is through our methodology sometimes, our methodology of doing ministry. You know, I believe that we have some, some great tools for doing ministry at Bethany Community Church. And I encourage people to take advantage of those. And yet, we can't get so in love with our methodology, the way that we've kind of designed for our church to be obedient to God, that we don't put our methodology on the same level as, as God's Word. So if a family finds Sunday school isn't a good thing for their family, or an individual says, look, I can't be involved in a care group, or an individual says, I can't be involved in midweek ministry, well, we don't say, look, that is an expectation for a person who's going to love the Lord. We say, love the Lord, and then find the methods that are going to allow you to pursue Him most effectively. So I can place burdens, some expectations on people through my traditions, through my methodology, and also through my attitude toward them. Parents struggle with this. We place expectations on our children that we are not able to meet, don't we? We have an expectation that our children would never be in, engaged in, in conflict, and whenever they are, we're, we're very harsh and condemning toward them, and yet our lives are marked by conflict. Young people have, have friends at school, and they have expectations about how those friends are going to treat them and how those friends are going to invite them to things and think about them. And yet, you know, as young people, you don't behave like 
You want other people to behave toward you. You have expectations for your coworkers. You have expectations for your spouse. And when you see your spouse engaged in behavior that's, that's wrong or, or the behavior that's not up to your ideal, you have this expectation for how they live and they fall short of it and you condemn them. You have these burdens for them and, and, it's, and it's stifling for them. And yet, you know this in your heart, if they held you to the same standard that you hold them, you would also fail to meet it. Are my expectations for others harsh and burdensome? You know, in Acts 15, we we encounter something really neat. In Acts 15, some Pharisees come to the church at Antioch, a church that's made up of a lot of Gentile believers, and these Pharisee Christians, these Pharisees who have become Christian, come to this new church in Antioch, and they tell them that they need to become like Jews. They tell them you need to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And there's this big Jerusalem council where they deal with this issue. How Jewish does a Christian need to be to be a Christian? And Peter stands up and he says this in verse 10 of Acts 15. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And then as as the conversation continues, James stands up, who's a very Jewish person, and James says something that is incredibly mature, and I imagine must have been extremely difficult for a Jewish person steeped in 1,500 years of Jewish tradition to stand up and say this. He said, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. That's the heart of a follower of Christ, not the heart of a lawyer. Are my expectations for others harsh and burdensome? That's question number one. Question number two. Question number two we encounter in verse 47 all the way through verse 51. Are my spiritual forefathers prophet killers? Are my spiritual forefathers prophet killers? Jesus is still at the table. He continues his diatribe against the lawyers here, and he says this in verse 47. Woe to you. This is the second woe. Why? Because you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. There's something very ironic going on here. These lawyers are engaged in monument building. They build these monuments to the prophets that have been killed, and Jesus is saying, you think that you're honoring the prophets, you think you're celebrating their life, but you are actually celebrating the fact that they're dead and no longer around to tell you what to do. Your spiritual forefathers aren't the prophets. Your spiritual forefathers are the prophet killers. Look what he says next. How how can he justify this? He says, because or therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and he's talking to the lawyers there at the table, I'm going to send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. 
He's saying to these lawyers and Pharisees, God in his wisdom is going to send you both the prophets and he's going to send you the apostles. And your response to these prophets and apostles is going to be just like the response of your spiritual forefathers. Just like they killed the prophets, you're going to persecute and kill these prophets. And what's the result going to be? He says, that the blood, verse 50, the blood of the, all the prophets shed from the foundation of this world are going to be charged against this generation, verse 51, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Abel proclaimed God's righteousness to Cain and Cain killed him. It's not exactly clear which Zechariah Jesus is referring to. One of the Zechariahs we see something similar to this happens to him in 2 Chronicles 24. In 2 Chronicles 24, Zechariah stands in in front of all the people and said to them, Thus says God, this is in 2 Chronicles 24, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you've forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. And the response of the people to Zechariah's word, the text tells us, is they conspired against him. They conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. What's the parallel between the prophet killers of old and the lawyers and Pharisees. Jesus says the parallel between them and you is you both hear God's word and reject it and persecute the people who bring it. There's a new movie that came out a few months ago called The Help, about the civil rights era. And there's a couple of documentaries that have come out about that area of era, of course. You may have read some books about the civil rights era. And every time I see a documentary or I read a book about this time in our nation's history, I become very angry and, and, and I feel just a sense of, of injustice and, and it's almost nauseating. It is nauseating. It's physically, it physically affects me to think about the ways that other people suffered at the hands of other American citizens. It, it, it seems unreal to me. It's, it's like a, I can't believe that actually happened. Here's the thing that kind of bothers me though. I think, I believe that if I had lived during that time and been an adult in that time, I I believe I would have stood up against that and said something. And yet as I talk to people who can remember the civil rights era, especially people who were in communities where it was a very, uh, very big issue, almost violent issue, and I talk with them about it, they say, you know, I, I just wasn't that aware of what was going on in a lot of ways. I, did, I wasn't really engaged in that. And then I think about what am I doing right now as I think about injustice that exists right now. And if right now things like, like injustice don't bother me, what makes me think that my forefathers were the people who actively opposed wickedness? What makes me think, what makes me have any right to think that I would have been a person that stood up and opposed what was going on? My conduct now tells me something about who my forefathers of the faith are. Maybe that's true for you as well. Maybe you say, 
One of my heroes of the faith, one of my forefathers in the faith is Joseph. Really? You're a person who opposes and flees immorality? Is your spiritual forefather Joseph? Or is your spiritual ancestor Potiphar's wife who pursues immorality in secret? You say, well, one of my heroes of the faith is Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. Really? Jeremiah is one of your spiritual forefathers? You're a person who, despite who's around you and what they say and how they respond, you stand up for God's word? Or is your spiritual forefather, King Jehoiakim, who persecuted Jeremiah and for fear of the people refused to proclaim God's word? You say, well, one of my spiritual forefathers is John the Baptist. Really? John the Baptist? You're willing to suffer the persecution of people for proclaiming righteousness? Is John the Baptist your spiritual forefather, or is it King Herod, who enjoyed listening to spiritual things, but when push came to shove, chose immorality? You say, well, Paul, the apostle Paul is one of my spiritual forefathers. Really? You're proclaiming the gospel with all your fervor, despite what obstacles arise? Or is your spiritual forefather Paul's companion Demas? who loved this present world and forsook Paul. He said, well, as a family, uh, my wife and I, we kind of model our ministry after Priscilla and Aquila in the book of Acts, who took in other people and were hospitable and proclaimed to them the truth of God. Really? And uh, Priscilla and Aquila are your spiritual ancestors? That's the type of ministry you're engaged in actively? Or are Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, your spiritual forefathers, who failed to engage in the things of the Lord and lied about their involvement, withheld their resources, conspired against the people of God. It's a hard truth that Jesus is saying here. Who are your spiritual forefathers in the faith? Your conduct and your response to God's word right now reveals who your true spiritual forefathers are. The lawyers love to talk about the great prophets of old, but their response to God's word revealed their spiritual forefathers were not the prophets, but the prophet killers. That's a hard truth. Let's look at the third question. Third question do I make it more difficult for people to know God? Do I make it more difficult for people to know God? He says, verse 52, third woe, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. What's the woe here? The lawyers were literate. They had the ability to read God's word. They had, the, they had access to the Torah. They had access to the prophets. They had access to the writings. And, and they could have taken those writings and they, they could have read them and proclaimed them to people. But what they did is they, they took God's word and they, they layered it with tradition and tradition and burdens and tradition and more tradition. And so I believe it became so convoluted in their thinking, they couldn't even distinguish what was their interpretation of the text and the text itself. And because of their hard hearts, they failed to enter the kingdom of God through faith. 
And then as if that weren't, weren't enough, as other people tried to gain access into knowledge of God, they hindered them from being able to do so. Do I make it more difficult for people to know God? Someone asked me just this past week how necessary I believed it to be to go to seminary. So they, they said, uh, does a person, in order to be a pastor, have to go to seminary? And I, I said, no, a person doesn't have to go to seminary in order to be a, a pastor. I said, I believe it's just one way that a person can gain access to the, the tools that one's going to need to be able to study God's Word most effectively. So it's kind of an efficient way to be trained in how to, to teach God's Word and understand God's Word. I said, and, I, and, I, and there's kind of an underlying theme behind their question. I said, and I do have to admit that sometimes, as we kind of get in a, a theological bubble, we can begin to, to talk about terms of such minutia and, and use such phrases that it can be very discouraging to people who, who don't know the lingo, as it were. I had a friend one time who was uh, going to go on to an, an elder board, and as, uh, as, as they were asking him questions about uh, different doctrines that he believed, they, they used a, a Greek term to describe one of the doctrines. And they weren't, actually, they weren't asking him, they were kind of talking amongst themselves about what an, an elder needed to know. And they said, yeah, every elder, a person can't be an elder without knowing this, this doctrine, this term. And, and my, my friend is hearing them say, and he goes, I have no idea what that is, but I'm just going to nod my head like I understand what they're talking about. And then later asked me, he goes, what does this word mean? And I said, well, it's a, a Greek word that that is just in this verse. And, and he understood that verse. He was able to articulate it. But you see what I'm saying? Sometimes we set up burdens and hurdles for people that, that aren't biblical hurdles for them to actually know God. A great illustration of this happened in the, uh, in the 12th century. In the 12th century, remember the, the Roman Catholic Church had begun to establish all these different uh, sacraments and, and kind of burdens upon people. Instead of proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ clearly, as entrance into heaven, they began talking about all these other things that a person had to do and understand in order to be saved, in order to have a, the opportunity even of going to heaven. And they began to restrict who had the authority to proclaim God's word, and access to God's word became limited. And in the 12th century, there's this guy named Peter Valdo who began to just kind of as a lay person proclaim God's word, and he had these followers called the Valdensians that began to proclaim God's word. And instead of celebrating these people who were proclaiming God's word, the church called them in, told them they had to stop and made them appear before a council and decided that they were going to interrogate them to see whether or not they could proclaim God's word any longer. They began by asking them a series of questions. And, you know, these, these Valdensians didn't know all the different terms that the, the church used to describe different doctrines. They just simply knew God's word, probably better than the people who were interrogating them. So, for example, one of the questioners began saying, do you, do you believe in the Trinity? The Valdensians said, yes, we believe in the Trinity. He said, then the interrogator said, do you believe in Mary, the mother of Jesus? And they said, yes, we believe in Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the whole place begins erupting in laughter because, according to the doctrine, you couldn't say you believe in, the Mary, in Mary, you have to say you believe on Mary. Just ridiculous minutia. 
making it more difficult for people to actually know God. How do you, you and I hinder people from knowing God? I believe that you hinder people from knowing God when you preach your convictions instead of preaching Christ. One of the ways you hinder people from knowing God is when you begin to preach your convictions instead of proclaiming Christ. Hopefully what's happened in your life is this. You've uh, come to know Jesus Christ. You've placed your faith in him alone for your salvation, repented of your sins, placed your faith in him alone for your salvation. And as you've grown in your love for Christ, your behavior has changed. That should be true of you. And as your behavior has changed, out of a desire to grow in your love for Christ, you've begun doing certain things, and and ethical situations arise in your life, and you make certain decisions based upon your love for Christ. And so there's probably a lot of things you do in regard to to television or, or media that you do out of a love for Christ. Here's the danger. As you begin to talk to someone else about your relationship with Christ, the danger that exists for you is that you begin to preach your convictions instead of proclaiming Christ. And that leads to a lot of complicated, convoluted things. For example, you might tell a person, well, you know, I, I don't believe that you can have cable television, but I have Netflix. And I don't believe that you should have Facebook accounts, but I do do email. And it just over and over, all these different things that you've done that are, are wise, perhaps, for you, but aren't Christ. And a person hears all that thing, and they're, man, that's, that's really, this God thing is really complicated. It's not. <laughs> there are a lot of complicated situations that arise in life, but the Christian life is very simple. I live by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for me, and out of the love for him, I'm compelled to pursue him. I hinder people from, know, from knowing God as I proclaim my cultural convictions, my convictions instead of Christ. I hinder people from preaching my tradition instead of Christ. I hinder people as I preach a, a cultural Christianity instead of Christ. I don't know if you've heard about this, but I, I just saw this yesterday. I haven't read a lot about it, but Maybe you've heard about this. Today is supposed to be like Pulpit Freedom Sunday. And pastors all across America who are kind of upset about the IRS's regulations on what you can do politically from the pulpit are, are going to stand up and endorse certain candidates and stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, just found out about it yesterday. Haven't had time to figure out which candidates I'd want to endorse anyway. But uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to me. And the, I believe, I'll say whatever. I need to say from the pulpit, regardless of IRS regulations, and, you know, deal with whatever the the government wants to do uh, in submission to them, willingly, taking whatever consequences arise. But, you know, I I don't believe in a cultural Christianity. I don't believe there's any political figure that perfectly embodies scriptural truth. And even if I took a good candidate and talked about how great this candidate is, that candidate's not going to be as effective and as, as, as beautiful as Jesus Christ, Right? Do I hinder people from knowing God? Do I make it more difficult by proclaiming my convictions, by proclaiming my cultural Christianity, instead of proclaiming Jesus Christ? Fourth question. Fourth question. Do I refuse to listen to biblical correction? Verse 53, 
we see that Jesus has just said these words, and he gets up and he leaves. Maybe, maybe it's a little awkward, you know, after you've declared woe, six woes on everyone at the table, I, I imagine conversation uh, kind of dies down a little bit. So Jesus leaves, and the scribes and the Pharisees begin to press him hard as he's leaving. They're trying to provoke him to speak about many things. They're kind of shooting off these questions. And why are they doing that? Lying in wait to, for him to catch him in something he might say. The Pharisees and the lawyers demonstrate the exact wrong way to respond to the correction of God. Imagine you had the opportunity to sit at a meal with Jesus Christ. And imagine that Jesus Christ began to lay open to you the main things that are wrong with your heart. I, I imagine it would be incredibly difficult for me to hear my Lord open up my heart and reveal things to me that I didn't even know about myself. It would be extremely unpleasant in one sense. And yet the other, in the other sense, it would be an incredibly precious thing. Jesus Christ himself revealing the things that are wrong in my heart. The exact wrong way to respond to correction is to first refuse to listen to what's even said. There's no moment in which the Pharisees and lawyers step back and think, hmm, that's a very interesting point. Not a moment. They refuse to listen to what he said. They begin to attack him, and they have an increased hostility toward him. You know, what was your response, kids, the last time mom or dad corrected you? What was the response of your heart? Parents, what was the last time when someone corrected you, how did your heart respond? At work, when your boss corrected you the last time, what was the response of your heart? At school, whenever teachers correct you, what's the response of your heart? The response of your heart to correction, toward authority that God has placed over you, to correction from a fellow brother or sister in Christ reveals a lot about the condition of your soul. The person who loves Jesus Christ loves correction. Let me say that again. The person who loves Jesus Christ is going to love correction, not because it feels good, not because it feels pleasant, but because they love Jesus Christ and the correction is going to enable them to love him more. It's going to reveal those things in their life that are obstacles to loving him more. And that's why I say, as you think about these questions, uh, hopefully you're not just able to say, no, 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 no. You say, boy, I could see that in my heart. I could see in my heart that maybe my spiritual forefathers aren't the people I thought they were. God, Help me be more obedient to your word and not reject it. God, help me as I, I may be placing barriers through my conduct that make it more difficult for people to know God. God, help change my heart so I listen to biblical correction more. That's the heart of a person who loves Jesus and is not a lawyer. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts, engage us to love you more, 
and give us wisdom in knowing where we failed to know you and love you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.